From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello, welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show, and we're honored that you're joining us today. We're especially grateful if you're a listener in the 48 states that changed their clocks to daylight savings time over the weekend. Our listeners in other countries may also benefit from knowing this. See, Arizona is among one of the two states that don't change their clocks for daylight savings time, so I don't always remember to check when it's happening. Well, I found out that it was this past weekend, so I didn't give you a forewarning on our last show, and I apologize for that. You see, generally, the U.S. changes their clocks somewhere around the beginning of spring, which would be around the 20th between our two shows in, in March, but for some reason it was early this year on March 10th. Had I known, I would have formed warned you on our last show, as I mentioned, and that way you'd be able to adjust to know when to listen an hour later if you've changed your clocks. Well, fortunately, all of Europe has standardized changing their clocks, and they'll be changing it on March 31st, so they won't be impacted until our, la- our first show in April, so next show won't affect them either. But what this means for you doing international business or trading on the U.S. stock exchanges, if you haven't changed your clocks yet, there will be an unusual time difference for the next 20 days. And our listeners in South America, they've been dealing with an unusual time difference since mid-February. Don't you love the consistency? Now, are you wondering which states don't change their clocks? Well, it is Arizona and Hawaii. Trust me, both states get enough sunshine that they don't need longer hot days. Any listeners older than six or seven years old, and I think that's most of us, might remember that half of Indiana also didn't change their clocks. Well, that changed a little while back. Instead, they now confuse me totally since half the state is on one time zone and the other half on the other all year long. It's like me saying I'm half Polish and half German. You figure out which half is which. Now, we've got a fascinating guest, so I'm certain you'll be glad you tuned in. And if you're joining us for the first time today, after today's show, you'll probably want to check out the archive of past shows, and I'll tell you about that shortly. You see, in each show, we try to make sure we share some great investment ideas or remind you about the investment fundamentals, or we inform you of investments your broker doesn't want you to know about. We've been doing a series on alternative investments, and today's show is a continuation of that series. We've already covered several alternative investments on prior shows, so if you missed some of those, you'll want to go back to the archives and re-listen to them. Now, on the show with Matthew Tuttle, where he gave an overview of alternative investments, we mentioned that the major university endowment funds typically have done very, very well. They've been among the best-performing investment funds. You see, those funds, those endowments, have about 40% of their assets in alternative investments and only 60% in traditional financial securities. Today, we'll be talking about one of the key investment strategies these university endowments use. Our special guest today is Nicholas Vardy, who's been involved with managing money and advising investors ever since he finished his third university degree. And since he's based in London, we don't have to worry about a schedule change affecting the timing of this show for him because of this daylight savings time confusion since they haven't changed their clocks yet. And Arizona doesn't. Since our uh, topic today is hedge funds, which would be... uh, 
it would seem appropriate, and that's what we did, is to have a guest who's run a hedge fund and meets regularly with hedge fund managers and other financial professionals so he knows what he's talking about. He didn't just write about it. He didn't read about it. He didn't invest in a hedge fund or two. He actually ran one. See, today is March 11th, 2013. It's 9.04 a.m. in Phoenix, Arizona, 9.04 a.m. in the Pacific Zone, and 4.04 p.m. in the U.K. Maybe I should preface all of those times with, I think, you're listening to the Walt DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. The 9 a.m. is constant, but the time you listen might change, depending on when you change your clocks. Now, I certainly hope you join us each time we air, but if you do miss a show, or if you want to go back and re-listen to those archives I mentioned, whether it's on Alternative Investments or others, you can hear them on the archives. Where are they? www.wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archive. Now, for those curious about the U.S. Uh, equity markets, which have basically been heading north for about five months, and it seems like an almost constant increase in price, the U.S. market started off with a slightly negative start, and now they're already positive. And that uh, is kind of unusual for a Monday. Starting negative is typical. Asia was mixed, Europe is mixed, and Brazil is down by about 1%, which is about as consistent as what when uh, these countries change their clocks. For those of you who invested in the U.S. equity markets, happy anniversary. This past weekend was the fourth anniversary since the market bottom in March of 2009. And what a four-year period it's been. The S&P is up, S&P 500, I should say, is up 130% in that time. I was in touch with H.L. Quist this weekend, uh, who's been on the show a couple times, and jokingly shared with him that he was overly optimistic in 2008 when he predicted we'd been an all-time high in three years. Now, very few people believed him at that time, thought he was crazy. And whether it took three or four years is not critical for me. I'm glad I knew in advance. And that's a key reason we bring on guests like H.L. Quist and Nicholas Vardy. Now, we have a lot to cover on hedge funds, so it's time to introduce our special guest, Nicholas Vardy. He's the founder and CIO of Corporal Corp. Mm, let's try that again. Let's, it must be Monday morning, huh? Uh, in Arizona, it is Global Guru Capital, and he's based in London. He has a bachelor's degree from Stanford in economics and a master's degree in European history, also from Stanford, and a JD from Harvard Law School. Now, even as a Cornell graduate, I have to agree, those are pretty good schools. Now, uh, how did he get into managing money, into hedge funds, and living in Europe? We'll let him tell us that. Let's give a warm radio welcome to our guest, Nicholas Vardy, Esquire. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for having me. And I'm really glad you're able to join us this week because I think you're you're like the perfect person we could pick for this topic. Uh, he's been on the inside, he's been on the outside, and you know a lot about this. Now, I gave a brief overview of your background, Nicholas. How do you introduce yourself? Let's say you're, you're at a cocktail party, just like with our listeners today. Uh, how do you introduce yourself? Well, I usually first off say, uh, start off by saying that I'm an international man of mystery. Uh, which usually gets people's attention, but uh, but after I like that, I, I generally say that I'm a uh, I'm an investment advisor. Um, that's my primary role. Uh, that I'm an SEC registered investment advisor and run an investment management business, and that I also edit 
um, for uh, financial publications, financial newsletters uh, for Eagle Publishing based in Washington, D.C. Um, and, uh, and so that's my primary, primary focus. So first, I'm a money manager. Second, I'm an editor of, uh, of a handful of um, financial newsletters. Okay. Now, before we dig into hedge funds, which is obviously our key topic, let's get a little bit more information on your background because of that uh, man of mystery. Uh, and I'm assuming you were born in the U.S., uh, as I was, and went to school here in the U.S., uh, and, 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 and based on your accent, I'm assuming you were born and raised and schooled in the U.S., correct? Yes, I was born in the U.S., <laughs> oh, I like it. Um, I yeah, like there's it. lots right. of Russians in my, Russians in my uh, London neighborhood here, by the way. Um, <laughs> they hear a lot of Russian accents. Uh, yes, I was born actually in Topeka, Kansas. I grew up in Pittsburgh um, and um, uh, went to college at uh, Stanford. My brother actually went to, car- to uh, college at Cornell. Um, and then uh, I went to Harvard Law School. Did not really enjoy the uh, law school experience and had an opportunity to uh, very soon after graduation, to join an international law firm which had uh, opened an office in uh, Budapest, Hungary, uh, called uh, Baker McKenzie. Um, and sure. so um, I was uh, I worked in uh, East and Central Europe as a lawyer for about three or four years, um, working on a lot of the public offerings and bringing different uh, companies um, to um, uh, to uh, to stock markets. Uh, and so when people at that time asked me what I did, um, I used to tell them that I was uh, dismantling century-planned economies, which uh, which actually was, was kind of true, because sure. a lot of the state-owned assets were being you know sold off to foreign investors, floated on stock exchanges, and I did all the kind of the grunty legal work for that um, in uh, in uh, um, Hungary uh, and elsewhere in Central Europe for uh, two international law firms. I started off with Baker McKinsey and went on to another one called White & Case. Uh, but mm-hmm. even then, when I was at White & Case, I became actually much more interested because of the legal work I was doing uh, in the financial aspects of the of the business, and so even while I was an attorney, I started retooling myself um, as a chartered financial analyst, um, which is a um, kind of a professional certification. It's, it's considered the gold standard of investment management, um, and uh, and I began to study for that uh, even while I was a lawyer, uh, and then moved on to an investment bank uh, where I actually helped set up an asset management division for them. Uh, actually mm-hmm. ran the biggest uh, investment fund um, in Hungary for a while, set it up, uh, ran it for about a year and a half, and then transitioned into a more mainstream portfolio management job uh, in London in 1990, 90, 1996. Okay, so, all right. Well, that explains how you got to, to well, first of all, we, we happened to met in, meet in Budapest, and I, I think that was just uh, you were back visiting. But uh, I didn't realize you had been with Baker and McKenzie, Case and White. And those are the big law firms that all of the international companies use because they are familiar with the U.S. offices. Yes. Uh, very, very interesting. Now, before I forget, there's going to be a lot of exciting stuff here. Let's get some information out about how people find out more about you, your main website, and that way they can find out the newsletters that you're uh, writing and be able to follow you. Uh, what's the name of that website? Uh, the, the the website for my uh, money management uh, business is globalgurucapital.com, um, and you can find out information about uh, my various investment programs that I have on there. Uh, and I, for the money management business, right, uh, which is uh, there's a separate. I um, sorry, not for the money management business, for the newsletter for the, business. Uh, newsletters, right? Uh, for, for the newsletters, uh, there's a website which is essentially my name, nicholasvardi.com, uh, and that is run by Eagle Publishing out of Washington D.C. And there you can get information about the uh, various newsletters that I edit for for Eagle Publishing. One of the newsletters is actually free. Uh, it's called The Global Guru. 
Um, and it is a free uh, weekly e-letter that goes out to about 170,000 people uh, every Tuesday. Uh, and that's sort of a general um, uh, newsletter on various investment trends. Uh, I give kind of my thoughts on what's going on in the markets every Tuesday, and you can sign up for that, and you can get that for free, uh, and that'll be, that will be delivered to you uh, basically in the U.S. Um, on uh, Tuesday afternoons. Uh, and the other, okay. I have, th- I have uh, three other pay services through Eagle, which is specific stock recommendations and investment recommendations. Hmm, interesting. So let me just repeat those. GlobalGuruCapital.com would be the uh, advisory. And then Nicholas Vardy, V-A-R-D-Y, uh, not the uh, European spelling, which might be a W, but it is a V. All right, very good. And so those are the two places I can get information about you, which I knew about the Global Guru, and I didn't know that the NicholasVardy.com had the information on the newsletter. So that's great. Now, you're going to find, I think, a number of new subscribers to that uh, newsletter to uh, find out more about it tomorrow, given that uh, you're, you're on the show today. Now, you went to two pretty good schools. Uh, what was your original career path? Was it to become a, a lawyer? Was it become an economist? Because it seems like you kind of took a couple paths. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, initially as an undergraduate, I majored in uh, I majored in economics at Stanford, and I was also mm-hmm. focused on at that time um, looking at um, century planned economies. I did an honors, undergraduate honors thesis in um, in uh, on the work of a of a Hungarian economist named Janusz Kornai, who was probably the only Nobel Prize winning caliber economist that Eastern Europe produced. Um, he now he has been teaching at Harvard for a while. Um, but uh, he's probably not going to get the Nobel Prize because he's, you know, it's just not that fashionable to sort of talk about central planned economies anymore, even though the U.S. is kind of turning into one. So, um, but um, but um, uh, so, so I worked on that, and at the same time, I also had an interest in, in history. Uh, I actually entered a Ph.D. program at Stanford in European intellectual history and did that for a year um, before um, I won a Fulbright scholarship in economics um, uh. based on my undergraduate work. And um, and uh, I went to Europe on a Fulbright scholarship for a year, and at that time I had to decide whether I was going to continue being an academic um, or if I was going to uh, kind of move over more into the practical realm. And so I applied to a bunch of – actually applied to economics, PhD programs, um, uh, sort of, you know, whatever the big universities in the U.K. and the U.S. was mm-hmm, admitted mm-hmm. to them, also applied to law schools. And um, and I just decided to at that time um, just continue on with uh, uh, with uh, with law school, and then went on to Harvard Law School in 1988. Um, and um, so that's I, I have to say I kind of uh, did the whole thing by default. If I were doing it over again today, I'd probably um, suck it up and do a PhD in economics. But uh, you know, yeah, you would have short, you would have shortened it probably also because you would have known kind of where you're going. But isn't that nice with hindsight? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I'm 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 a lot smarter in hindsight than I'm in foresight, just as a general principle. So keep that in mind with my comments. Well, that's also true of most investors, right? We all do much better in hindsight than than we do uh, <laughs> guessing ahead of time. Uh, but you know, it's interesting. H.L. Quist, who I just mentioned earlier in the in the uh, intro, who's been on the show a couple of times, has a very strong background in history and economics, and he's studied all of the past market cycles. He's done pretty well forecasting fundamental market trends. It sounds like your background is somewhat similar. You're looking at the economics, but you're also look, looking at uh, how that's played out historically. So it sounds like that may be one of your success factors. 
Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think it was. I mean, I also did my master's thesis on a guy named Friedrich Hayek, who the, was the big um, big economic rival to Keynes in the 1930s. And mm-hmm. uh, having studied um, uh, economics as an undergraduate, which is in the U.S. is generally a very sort of Keynesian approach to economics, Correct. Um, having, having sort of... Uh, uh, you know, dug into Friedrich Hayek, who was actually much less known back then than he is now, uh, as kind of an icon of the Austrian school of economics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gave me a very different perspective on it, and it was very interesting. And part 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 of the way, part of the reason I got involved with him is because he had a debate in back in the 1930s with a Polish economist named Oskar Lange um, on the called the planning debate, because then there was this fallacy that you could actually all that you could plan the economy, and it's really just a function of computing power. Um, and it was basically hmm. this oversized linear algebra problem in the 1930s for the you know the, the uh, economy in the Soviet Union to be run perfectly, and then Hayek um, engaged in a big debate with Oscar Lung on this, saying that actually was not the case, and that the free markets are able to distribute information much more efficiently, um, and um, and that was actually a you know that was the, the focus of my master's thesis. Um, hmm. In that area, so I became much more familiar with a different way of looking at economics than um, I would have by simply pursuing kind of a mainstream um, economics PhD, even given you know what's usually taught in these programs. Which is what I think most of the people in Congress went through is the uh, Keynesian, if they learned any economics at all. Uh, yeah, so that's why we're seeing so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, I did a little checking. There's this guy by the name of Hussein Barack Obama, who happens to be the president of the United States these days, if you didn't know that. Right, right. Um, and um, I guess to give him a little more credibility, it says that he was a classmate of yours. Um, now, did you get to know him at all at Harvard? Well, you know, to be honest, um, I, I, when I first heard his name pop up about six, seven years ago, mm-hmm. I, I, it, it sounded vaguely familiar, but I hadn't, I couldn't really place if, he, if I'd heard of him as a classmate of mine at Stanford or a classmate of mine at Harvard. So, to be honest, he didn't make that much of an impression um, right. on me. So I wasn't sort of, you know, running around for 15 years saying that I was, um, you know, I went to school with the future president of the United States. So, right. um, yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, did I know him? I, I, I was in constitutional law class with him, um, mm-hmm. as I as I now recall. And he was kind of a, you know, I mean, every every kind of high school class or college class or whatever has sort of the student council president, you know, mm-hmm. type of uh, 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 person in it. And I guess he was kind of that. But you know, I mean, there's always, you know, kids who are kind of running the student council, and it's a little bit, you know, it's just kind of their thing. Um, but um, you know. Just from my perspective, I mean, it, wouldn't, it didn't seem to be kind of preordained that he was going to be president. Um, Harvard Law School is a very, uh, very, very political place. I think legal education yes. in the U.S. is also is very extremely political, much more so than um, than business school. And um, as, as an indication of of how, um, I don't know. I mean, it's just my view is I, you know, he really did come from. I don't say nowhere, but you know, I was surprised at his <laughs> his prominence. There, there was Correct. an article written in GQ magazine, which you cannot actually look up on the Internet anymore because they don't have it up there. And mm-hmm. I actually have it because I used to get a subscription to it. And it was, I think it was a year after we had graduated, uh, and it was called um, Harvard Law School, the Beirut on the Charles. Uh, and it talked about all mm-hmm. the political infighting at Harvard Law School and, you know, about all these issues about, you know, and this sort of, it just what an incredibly politically divided place it was. In fact, it's much like what Washington, D.C. is like today. Um, and uh, and it was very interesting. that, And I actually have it in my files, and I dug up that article a few years ago. 
Right. And, uh, you know, a year after graduation and all these familiar faces were sort of in the article and pictures of people I went to school with, you know, people sort of, you know, one or two years behind me, and not a single mention of Barack Obama, you know, in that right. article. Yep. Um, so, you know, if you sort of look at, uh, you know, how a reporter who sort of kicked around there for, you know, a year later after he graduated and talked to people about what was going on there, um, you know, his name he didn't, didn't notice him, him really, right? Well, I mean, look. I mean, he he was the first president of the you know Harvard uh, black president of the Harvard Law Review, et cetera. But you know, I mean, it just it it is amazing how you know history is is written by the victors. Um, and uh, and you know, I remember going back for one of my reunions at Harvard, and um, and Elena Kagan, who was the dean at the time, who's now in the Supreme Court, said mm-hmm. was 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 laughing, telling the audience, "It's like you know, Barack must have been extremely busy at Harvard Law School because every single professor here claims to have been his mentor." Ah, um, that's good. That's good. But you know, and, a few uh, comments I've seen from past climate, uh, classmates say, say the same thing as you. Nobody, you know, yeah, I guess he was there, but I didn't really know much about him. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess it's it's um, you know that that's kind of the way. You know, ironically, I, at Stanford, I was classmates with Susan Rice, who was sort of up to be Secretary of State um, right. b- before the sort of uh, Benghazi thing, and mm-hmm. and um, another guy, Mike McFall, is actually um, now, now ambassador to Russia, um, and I thought. You know, frankly, I thought both Susan Rice and Mike McFall, who were, I went to school with at Stanford, were much more. You know, those are people I kind of remembered as being pretty smart people, um, right. and they made they an impact know. on me mm-hmm. enough that I sort of, you know, kept up on what they were doing. Um, I can't say I did that with the uh, the guy who's in the White House, but that's just perhaps my own perspective on it. Yeah, oh, very interesting. Well, let's do a uh, Paul Harvey page two here. You're uh, tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you miss some of the prior shows, like the ones on alternative investments, or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, you can do one of two things, or both of them. Send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events, or in the upper left-hand side of the screen. If you're coming through the Internet, just under the Boomer and the Babes picture, there's a follow button. Click that, and they will keep you posted of the great shows. And a reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions. And we suggest the chat window. Just be below the radio player. If you didn't scroll down, there is a chat window. You can enter in a question, comment, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, try to fit that in. Today we're talking about hedge funds with Nicholas Fardy. He's the CIO of Global Guru Capital. I got it right this time, Nicholas, based in London. And, Nicholas, when I looked at your background, when you, you mentioned you moved over to London to, to, to move into kind of the more mainstream uh, mm. financial management, uh, it was Henderson, uh, as I recall. That's uh, correct, yes. Uh, you were actually running for funds. That sounds like a big jump going from a lawyer advising and working on, on uh, breaking up uh, you know, central planning type companies, uh, and <laughs> I definitely can relate to that in my background there. But uh, then all of a sudden you're running four funds. Uh, that's, uh, you know, most investors can't even manage their own portfolio. That sounds like a pretty big leap. Well, you know, I mean, there was a there was a period in between there when I was running a fund in Hungary. Um, okay. So there was that transition. So I didn't go straight from the law office into uh, into uh, um, kind of mainstream fund management. So I mean, I, it was a very self conscious decision. Like I said, I started doing the um, the, the Charter Financial Analyst Program. By the right. time I got to Henderson, I was actually the only person who had a CFA among 90 oh, portfolio wow. managers. So in terms of formal qualifi- formal qualifications at that time, I was already kind of up there. 
Um, and, uh, and at that time also, uh, Central um, and Eastern European markets were, um, were quite hot. In fact, um, sure. um, uh, CNN, uh, where I did a lot of uh, kind of television appearances at the time between 1996 and call it 1999 when the Russian mar- – or the – August of 98 when the Russian market crashed. Russia collapsed, actually had yeah. a program every night called The Other Europe where they would have – kind of information mm-hmm. on what's going on in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, it does not have that anymore because Central and Eastern Europe doesn't really occupy that much of a – doesn't really – isn't that much of an interest for people anymore. So not for a now. combination of, of, uh, of, of really, you know, kind of my interest in investment management and being able to leverage that interest in the region um, into, uh, into a job uh, combined with basically kind of retooling myself from scratch, um, you know, that got me into that position. But it was very much a – kind of a self-conscious decision that I wanted to do that. And um, and like I said, what I was doing in Hungary in terms of you know setting up that investment management business was uh, was very much a stepping stone for that, and it was enough of a stepping stone to uh, to get me back in or get get me started more in a mainstream career. Sure. Okay. No, fascinating. As a matter of fact, uh, I always refer to it as New Europe, uh, which was the 10 or now right. really 12 countries that later became uh, the next members of the, of the European Union. For those wondering what uh, what exactly we're talking about, those that didn't live there as, as we had. Um, Anyway, then what inspired you? You and several partners started up a hedge fund, which I recall was called Convergence Capital. Uh, now, what inspired that change? You were having some fun running those funds in, in, in Henderson, uh, global, Henderson Global Investors, if I'm correct. And yes. uh, then you, you got inspired to go start your own thing. Was this just, uh, you know, we're smarter than, than, than the big companies. Uh, we're going to do our own. What, what was the inspiration? Well, after the Russian market crashed uh, in, um, in August of 1998, Kind of mainstream interest waned in um, in kind of Russia and, and Central and Eastern Europe, or the New Europe countries, as you as you said. Um, and um, uh, convergence capital was basically uh, the investment concept behind it was that um, you know despite this collapse, there were a lot of investment opportunities in that region, um, mm-hmm. really driven by one particular date, 2004, when yep. uh, ten of those countries were converging into the EU because there was a, a date on January 1st 2004 when 10 of these countries eight of them eastern Europe, uh, <clears throat> eastern central european countries were joining the um the european union um and that was where the name convergence came from they were converging to europe um and this was kind of one of those you know it was a historic opportunity in terms of um you know bond yields um you know um, coming down uh, converging to western european levels of the perceived financial risk uh, became reduced, uh, re-rating of the equity markets, um, and um, and really kind of a you know the investment concept there was okay. Here's a group of countries which are relatively small, but again because of this historic moment coming up yep. on January first, two thousand four, uh, there's an investment opportunity here, and um, and uh, I I uh, connected with uh, another guy who was head of strategy at the at a uh, um, Swiss investment bank UBS. Uh, mm-hmm. And he and I partnered with a um, <clears throat> actually a Dutch bank called ING, um, right. who were who hold the, who held a one third stake in the business as well. And um, my partner and I, and then ING's institution, um, set up this fund. Um, ING gave us some seed funding as well as um, as well as some office space, and uh, we ran that for a couple of years uh, based on that uh, based on the kind of the investment concept that I. Uh, that I outlined. It was a long, short equity fund, which means that we could bet okay. both on on the uh, on the markets going up and on the markets going down. 
and um, and so we did that uh, for uh, for a couple of years. Okay, and those markets did go up pretty well. I mean, really, at that point, we're talking a fairly long horizon because uh, it was uh, you know f- uh, five six years of that convergence process. But uh, yes. those markets did do uh, quite well, and their currency yes, they did quite yeah. a bit. So I guess the, the the bad news is you had the short side as well, and it was probably tougher to uh, to make money on the short side unless you you weren't able to buy uh, stock in the uh, companies that were going bankrupt in the process. So uh, that that does add a little bit of challenge. Now, when we met in Budapest, Hungary, and it would have been somewhere around that convergence time, um, mm-hmm. the uh, you had made the decision to eventually shut that fund down. Tell us about that decision. I think it's important for people to understand kind of the whole objective behind. Uh, hedge funds. Well, I mean, I think that was more of a business decision than anything else. Um, I okay. think you know, with any, any kind of a, any kind of an investment fund or a, you know, hedge fund in particular, <clears throat> you can you can come out with the best of uh, best of intentions and even very good performance. Uh, but if the business doesn't reach a certain certain critical mass, um, mm-hmm. and if you can't enough can't get enough people excited about it, um, you know, it's very very tough to go from uh, you know. Uh, a, a, you know, whatever a decent amount of money under management into a right real up into the multiple billions, yeah, exactly. And so, the investment concept, in terms of you know the reason that we're focusing on, really wasn't big enough to um, to take it to you know whatever that 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 uh, that larger level, that big level, and right. the big level, and um, and uh, you know you know we started right, we started the fund, we started managing the fund right around when the, um, you know the Iraq War. Uh, we, you know, right around nine, ah. right before nine eleven, it was you know the Iraq War was on, and oh, it was you know it was a, it was a very, it was kind of the post dot com bust. Uh, so it was a pretty challenging time, um, boy, and uh, you know for about eighteen months there, um, uh, and uh, you know it was, it was difficult to raise capital, and people were generally you know risk averse, um, and so you know it was actually a pretty hard time. It wasn't as hard as now, but uh, you know certainly by the standards of what had happened, you know up until then in recent historical memory. It was a challenging time to do that, and uh, that kind of get all got all washed away by what happened in 2007-2008. But um, you know, running a business at that time was 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 uh, was tougher. And so, even though we you know didn't make some good money with that, we decided we're actually a part with our partners, uh, ING Bank, to to wind that business mm-hmm. up, that operation up, and uh, move on to greener pastures. Well, okay, very interesting, and uh, you know, the, 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 you just bring back so many of these things that you know you kind of forget about. I remember exactly where I was in in, in Budapest at the time uh, the nine uh, eleven uh, happened, and I happen to remember the the Russian collapse. Was I, was I was the CFO of a company when our biggest trading partner was Russia. Uh, talk mm-hmm. about uh, shock to the you know potential shock to the bottom line. We actually survived it very very well, and uh, you know all of those things. Boy, you really bring back some some great memories and people that weren't there. Uh, can't really fully appreciate some of that going on, but uh, it's just amazing to, to to kind of have this little bit of reminiscing here this morning uh, or after in your, in your time. Now you keep your hand on the pulse of the hedge fund industry to some degree. You started a group called uh, London Junto. Uh, tell us yep. about that group, and I thought it was an interesting. I wasn't aware of that name source, so tell us a little bit about that, how that name came about, and what the idea was, and uh, you know how that group uh, got formed. Well, you know, the Junto was originally was a group that was originally formed by Benjamin Franklin uh, back in the 1740s in Philadelphia when he was a young man, and it was originally mm-hmm. formed as a group to um, for the betterment of mankind uh, in this sort of aspirational communitarian American you know tradition, 
mm-hmm. people at the original Junto in Philadelphia would get together and they would, you know, answer five questions. Uh, you know, are you open to, you know, men who oppose your ideas and are you do you promise to be honest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, and uh, it was kind of a, almost a, a philosophical kind of society. Now, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, it was the Junto or the the, um, the the successor to the Junto that formed two of the most important um, uh, institutions in Philadelphia and, in fact, the East Coast of the United States, um, the American Philosophical Society, which is still mm-hmm. operates there, and the University of Pennsylvania. Um, oh, and, I didn't uh, know those that. Are the, were the original basis of, of what the Junto was. Now, there's a guy named Victor Niederhofer who took this idea in New York. Victor Niederhofer was a trader who was blown up a couple different times. <laughs> he started doing um, uh, a, a New York version of the Junto, um, probably, I'm trying to think, maybe kind of, you know, 1980s or something like that. And he's got a staff who runs that in New York, um, you know, and they get together, I think, once a month. And um, it is more of a more of a kind of a, a political angle to it, more of a kind of, uh, you know, Ayn Randian objectivist kind of tilt okay. to it. So is it, is it necessarily investment-oriented? Um, and so I basically just knocked off that idea, and I said, well, mm-hmm. why don't I, why don't I um, you know, New York has been running this thing in London, or in uh, New York, why don't New I do York, something right. in, in, um, in London? And so that's when I started that uh, about eight years ago now um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. here in London, and um, and I decided to focus much more on uh, on the investment side of it exclusively. Um, I didn't really, you know, I mean, pe- since then a lot of people have started a lot of other Juntos, inspired both by Niederhofer's and by mine. And so within, when I was much more actively doing it, um, I was getting calls from Hong Kong and Moscow and <clears throat> Silicon Valley uh-huh. and, and other people of, you know, setting up Juntos, and everyone kind of brings their own sort of, you know, color to it. <clears throat> And, um, in fact, I just got a call from uh, Glenn Beck's um, outfit in the States last week that they are doing mm-hmm. a, a documentary or some reality show on the various juntos globally. Uh, and so they want to, you know, actually maybe they're coming to London to sort of film, film one of our events. Um, but, again, good. his perspective is more this kind of aspirational kind of, you know, seeking truth kind of thing. And, you know, so that's how the junto started. So I, I literally had these meetings in the room where Ben Franklin uh, negotiated the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Revolutionary War, with wow. the then Prime Minister um, Shelbourne. Uh, the room is called the Frank- Franklin Room. It's in, it's in a club called the Lansdowne Club in Mayfair, which is right in the mm-hmm. heart of the hedge fund um, uh, community in London. Gotcha. And so you're surrounded by all the big, you know, European hedge funds right there, and it's sort of, a, you know, uh, both philosophically and geographically, a um, terrific location to have these kind of meetings. Um, and during these meetings, I just kind of play talk show host, and I, uh, you know, kind of we do debates and, you know, do kind of an open forum as opposed to have, you know, some guy from, you know, UBS lecture you on some strategy thing, and sure. it's more open and debate oriented. So that's how uh, that's what that looks like here, and um, and that's where I've developed my very wide range of contacts in that hedge fund community here in London. Oh, very good. I, 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 that is really uh, fascinating. And to me, this sounds like I had started a small group um, here locally of investors just to get together once every week or two, actually two weeks is, was our plan, to uh, meet and talk about what we're doing investing-wise, what do we see the markets, to be honest, not to, be, not to, you know, pro, you know, not to, to, to tout something that we're really trying to sell off. Uh, I, I think the same same philosophy, but you really uh, got this in, in in a lot of fascinating tie-ins to that to that history. 
history. But it sounds like a great way to keep your your pulse on the on the market, see what others are thinking, see where uh, you know kicking around uh, you know perspectives on what's happening in various countries and what the risks are and those kind of. This sounds like a you know a great source for you to stay on top of the markets as well. No, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. I mean, look, we got some we got some <clears throat> some um, you know some of the leading hedge fund managers uh, you know in uh, in Europe speak there. Um, I mm-hmm. also spiced, sp- uh, spiced it up with. I actually had Steve Forbes speak there a couple of years ago. Um, a guy named Nassim Taleb who wrote The Black Swan, quite a well-known book. Um, right, I sure. Various oh, yeah. authors um, coming in there, like people who've done business in China. Um, uh, you know, ran books like Private Equity Guys in China or whatever. And obviously, when people write books, they obviously want to sell it, so they're relatively easy to get. But you get a lot of very interesting perspective. I actually had the guy who uh, hosts um, CNBC here in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of moderated debate with um, with some various top hedge fund managers that he had written a book about. Um, so it's a it's a you know it's a very good forum to for you know pretty sophisticated audience to uh, kind of swap ideas and um, oh definitely um, and uh, you know kind of get some get some value out of it as well as being you know generally pretty entertaining. Yeah, no, but I mean, if you go back to the original philosophy of, of Ben Franklin's, which is, you know, you open to to uh, contrary ideas. I mean, that's what you want when you're, you know, you can get caught up in your own smoke uh, when you're, you know, investing and you think you've got all the right strategy, and then you know, all of a sudden, some people start bringing up some of the things you didn't think about that make a hell of a lot of sense. Uh, it can get you to really start thinking about true hedging in in, in the sense of, of of doing something to zig when when you know you've been heading to the zag. Sure. Uh, but now let's go back to a little bit of history on the hedge fund side. Uh, when did hedge funds really get started? I mean, you know, when did we see the gems? That, that term, of course, is much more recent. But you know, when when you know could we say with the start of hedge funds and how has that industry grown over time? Uh, you know, how big is it today, for example? Well, um, it was originally the first hedge the first hedge fund, which is actually with a D at the end of it, hedged fund. Um, mm-hmm. Started by okay. him, Alfred Jones, back in 1949, uh, and this guy started this hedge fund. He was about uh, 48 years old, and um, he was a uh, a journalist at uh, Fortune magazine. And so his idea, mm-hmm. after interviewing all these guys who were, uh, you know, managing money, said that well, wouldn't it be interesting to have a um, an investment structure, a private limited partnership, is what he eventually came up with, that would mm-hmm. actually both bet on stocks going up as well as stocks going down. Um, and that's mm-hmm. where the idea of a hedged fund uh, came from. Um, and uh, and so he did this with uh, with a remarkable degree of success, um, starting in 1949 and kind of did it through the 50s, um, and really did not um, attract a whole heck of a lot of competition because quite a quite a novel concept. And sure. it was basically today's word hedge fund is just kind of a bastardization of the of the hedged fund. In other words, you know they just dropped the D off the end of it. Sure. Um, and um, and that's just the, that's the one that kind of you know that's the one that that, that eventually stuck. Um, and you know there are a couple of limited partnerships that were set up around that time. Uh, one of them was uh, one of them was uh, actually two of them were kind of the two investment greats out there. Warren Buffett um, set his up I think back in uh, back in '65 or '66 or something. Right. And then George Soros washed up on um, he was here in London for a while, and then he washed up on U.S. shores. Um, at uh, Schroeder-Wertheim, and uh, basically was the only guy in New York who was covering European bonds, and his, he says he was the one-eyed king among the blind uh, in the early 60s. And then in 1968, he started a fund with uh, Jim Rogers called the Double Eagle Fund, 
with, which, hmm. which was first a Schroeder Wertheim Fund, and then they sort of parted company in 1971 right. or 72, and they turned into the Quantum Fund. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so those, you know, in very, very different philosophies, um, uh, that's how sort of hedge funds in the 1970s became quite prominent. There was a big commodity, booms in, commodity boom in, in, 19, in the 1970s, so people uh, started were making making a lot of money. Trend followers, basically very simple trend following techniques, worked very very well back then. Guys like Bruce Bruce Kovner, um, uh, Michael Marcus, uh, a lot of guys made some. You know, uh, Paul Tudor Jones started back then. Correct, um, I remember he was more um, the shorting guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he did a lot of futures, and then I think Louis Bacon, who actually has this ridiculous mansion right around the cor- corner from me here in London, um, also started back then. A lot of these guys started off as commodities traders because of the inflation environment. Commodities were doing very well. They right. were, you know, by today's standards, relatively simple kind of trending markets. Futures are highly leveraged, so they were just racking up massive, massive profits. Um, and then um, the, uh, you know, kind of moving into Moving in the 1980s, they became a little bit more prominent. Other people wanted to um, get into the business. A lot of it was, frankly, just a fee structure because with a hedge fund, the fee structure is basically you charge a relatively high management fee, call it 2% of assets under management, um, mm-hmm. and then you get a 20% of the profits or 20% carry, as they say. And it started attracting a lot of, you know, quote-unquote talent um, into the financial industry. And I think a lot of, um, um, you know, people who – you know, like to think about things and think about how things are connected. We're really fascinated by this group of traders. Um, I actually personally think, and this applies to me as well, um, there's a guy named Jack Swager who wrote a book, a uh, series of books called The Market Wizards, which actually interviewed a lot of these guys, all of the hmm, ones who I mentioned and others, um, and, you know, inspired a whole generation of, you know, of people getting into finance. Um, and to be honest, it was the same case with me. I mean, I read that book back in when it came out sort of probably even after I, after I graduated law school and I said wow this is really interesting stuff and uh, I'd like to get involved in it and of course then you know information wasn't as fungible as it, as it is now right. Right. Um, and so you know it was it was just much more you know they'd sit around like oh you know have be on the phone call phone with someone at this you know this the uh, central bank in Japan on you know some move in the yen or something whereas now you get you know 50 times that information or 500 times that information or 5000 times that information on your iPhone um you know it was much more an information based business but anyway it started attracting a lot of people um and uh and uh that industry start off start off being a very niche Oriented industry. To give you an idea, mm-hmm. when Soros wrote a book, his book, The Alchemy of Finance, in 1987, I think he was in early his early 50s, and he was he was 48, and he was managing only about 20 million dollars um, on his hmm. own. Um, and so, even inflation adjusted wise, that's a relatively small amount of money. Maybe right, it's right. I don't know what is it, 60 million now or something or whatever that number mm-hmm. is. You can plug it into your inflation calculator on you know on the internet, which you can do. It, yeah. um, and um, and uh, uh, so it was a small industry. Now, com- now, today that industry is about 2.1, 2.2 trillion dollars, uh, which wow. makes it smaller than sovereign wealth funds. But um, you know, it makes it a much more important player um, in the uh, in the markets, especially as the 1980s and 1990s saw the emergency of of what they call quants or quantitative uh, traders. Um, as, as epitomized by guy, guys like D.E. Shaw and mm-hmm. um, Renaissance Capital, uh, or, or uh, 
uh, Renaissance Technologies, rather, um, which is uh, basically, you know, this super secretive hedge fund, which accounts for, you know, 10 to 20 percent of all the turnover of NASDAQ and the, you know, and, and the New York Stock wow. Exchange and everything, and has some insane track record of 4 percent per month for 19 straight years or something just insanely ridiculous like that. And uh, so it attracted a lot of money, a lot of, you know, talent, as it were, and um, and that's how the the uh, industry emerged. And now it's become a fairly standard type of investment strategy that you can actually now track, uh, as I do, and some investment strategies uh, through the use of exchange traded funds. So it's really trickled down to the to the uh, retail investor as well in terms of the strategies that are pursued by these um, by the hedge funds. Okay. And before we uh, continue, let me just remind our listeners that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive, and if you missed prior shows, you can find them on the archive. That is WealthDNA.us. Today we're talking with Nicholas Hardy. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Global Guru Capital. We're talking about hedge funds. All right, Nicholas, now the, the, the concept of hedging, which is really how it all got started, is to, 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 to reduce or neutralize risk uh, as, as that original fund, the hedged fund, was. Uh, but there are now a number of different types, and some of them don't sound like they really hedge at all. They seem fairly speculative. Uh, tell us about some of the main types of hedge funds. Well, you know, the original idea of, of you know, behind um, hedge funds is really, you know, as you suggest, hedging out that risk to a certain extent. Right. Um, now it doesn't mean now there are there's a strategy out there today that is called market neutral, which means mm-hmm. that you're hedging out ostensibly all the what they call the directional risk of the um, of the of the strategy. So if I take a um, uh, I mean I don't get too technical here, but if I take a hundred share position and you know going long on BlackBerry, I'll take a short position and you know going short on Garmin or something, and hopefully mm-hmm. those will set set each other off. So your overall volatility in the fund is going to be lower. And hopefully you think Garmin's going to tank, and then BlackBerry's going to, you know, do well or something, and so you make money on both sides. Okay. Correct. Um, and so that's the basic idea. And there are funds that do that. Um, you know, so for example, a that's what, that would be called a long short equity strategy. All Correct. Right? Um, and like so, your fund that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, and there's various ways you can size those positions or whatever, but, that, but that's, that's broadly it. Now, when you run those things, you can make a directional call in the sense that you can keep it totally market neutral. In other words, keep your net exposure, as they say, at 0%, right? right. Or you can say, well, I've got a view that uh, you know, this market you know, upturn that we've had in the past five months, that's going to continue. So I'm going to, I'm going to actually say, well, you know, I'm going 15% net, 50% net long or 70% net long mm-hmm. or even 130% net long because I'm using leverage and borrowing money. Right? right. So I will still short the garment or something, but actually I'm going to you know, bet 120% of my capital you know, on, uh, on the market going up. And, you know, so you can have kind of directional bets there. Um, right. And so that's the, you know, that's that's one particular strategy, and I, you know, that's <clears throat> that's sort of that's with equities. Now, the original hedge fund, let's just say the original hedge funds, like let's say Jones or mm-hmm. Soros after them, they would do that type of investing, okay, and add different asset classes. So they would say, you know what, um, I'm going to add commodities to this. I'm going to add okay. currencies to this. Okay, I'm going to add bets on interest rates, so fixed income bets to this, all right? And once you expand that asset class into very large and liquid asset classes, um, you know, like currencies or, you know, these other asset classes, then it kind of morphs into a strategy called global macro. 
And so, right. okay. the, you know, um, Soros and, and, and Kovner and uh, Paul Tudor Jones and all these guys who start off as commodities traders, um, they, uh, they, they morphed into kind of global macro guys because they started getting bigger and they wanted to participate in bigger markets, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, that's how that if, – if, if Jones' Jones' original hedge fund was basically kind of a long, short equity fund, that kind of mm-hmm. morphed into global macro, you know, plus commodities funds in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, with the sort of guys who were sort of big shots in this business, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and then, um, then, you know, then there's a bunch of other strategies that sort of came, came on to – came on to this, um, you know, kind of a subset of the global macro is a strategy called managed futures, um, right. which, which, which trades exclusively, you know, futures. And there's special situations. There's activist funds, which like Carl Icahn, you know, you Correct. have this okay, good point. feud with him and, you know, Dell on, on going private or whatever, and he's trying to extract value by, you know, throwing people out of board seats and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a number of these different strategies that you can use. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the big liquid ones are really the sort of, you know, the global macro ones. And, you know, these strategies go in and out of fashion. Uh, and the reality is also that as more people have gotten into the business, the returns have really come down substantially because it's not just George Soros running around with $20 million bucks in 1987 doing this, right. but there's $2.2 trillion worth of some of the smartest people in finance with, you know, exorbitant amounts of computer to uh, To duplicate and stuff like that. Did we just lose you there? Nicholas, do we still have you on on the line? I just lost your voice, Nicholas. I'm hoping we still have you. We may have to uh, get back in on on the uh, line again. My apologies, but uh, we are talking to uh, Nicholas Vardy. He's calling in from uh, London. He is the chief investment officer of Global Guru Capital. We're talking about hedge funds, and I am hoping that uh, let me let me just get a note over to our producer to make sure we can get him on as quickly as we can. Uh, these things unfortunately do happen with international lines. Ron, Ron, so, Nicholas, yes. has dro- Nicholas has dropped. The call has dropped. Okay. Uh, I'm watching for it to come back. Okay, would appreciate that. And uh, let me let me just mention a few things that I would have covered in the summary uh, while we wait for Nicholas to to come back on. Appreciate that, Pete. Thank you. Uh, if you want to be a hedge fund manager or run an investment fund, you obviously need a pretty strong background in economics, financial markets, and history. And Nicholas, Nicholas is back. Fantastic. Okay, that was very quick. Appreciate that. Thank you. Hello, Nicholas. Yeah, hi. Hi. Okay, good. Hey, that uh, that was a very quick recovery. Uh does happen on international lines. I've had it happen as well. Uh, so uh, appreciate your, your getting right back on. Uh, but on these different types of funds, so some of those you were talking about, you know, the activist funds, or I've even heard of, you know, some of these arbitrage funds, which right, really come right. back into favor now with more more takeovers. Uh, some of those can, uh, you know, do very well if they're right, and they can do very poorly. So they may not, in themselves, give you this uh, constant uh, positive performance. They could actually be very, very, uh, uh, very negative. And in addition to the to the competition, so some of when when you hear the term hedge fund, I think people need to understand they're not all created equal no i mean i think the strategies are very different and um i think the opportunities are frankly less in the business than they used to be um i think it's become much more institutionalized so mm-hmm. you know there's a there's a fund back in 1988 uh, called long-term capital management that had a couple of nobel prize sure. on its board that blew up um and um 
because whatever because of a certain strategy they were doing, they blew it because of Russia and they were too over leveraged. So because a lot of university endowments and the pension funds have started getting into hedge funds, the standards by which they um, evaluate these hedge funds and the focus on uh, risk control and operational diligence, as they say, um, has has uh, has really um, increased substantially. And the way institutional investors look at these hedge funds, and this is the way I look at it when I okay. um, uh, look at it in terms of um, allocating money toward hedge fund strategies in my IV Plus investment program, which replicates the uh, asset allocation strategy of the Harvard Endowment, is uh, that I look at it. Okay. I look at it as a diversifier. Um, in other words, Good. Um, surprising enough, they're much. These strategies are much lower vol. They have much lower volatility than the overall market. Um, mm-hmm. So when the market goes up, they tend to go up less. When the market goes down, they tend to go down less. Um, they're relatively uncorrelated to the market, so you know it, they don't really have a whole heck of a lot to do with what emerging markets are doing or foreign real estate or any of these other asset classes I have in there. Um, and uh, you know they're kind of boring. You know, um, they're they're kind of uh, they're, they're they almost they act opposite tr- from from what you would what you would think. They're actually sort of the anchor or this most stable aspect of the you know of the portfolio, simply because mm-hmm. the risk is so tightly controlled, which is very different from what a hedge fund looked like uh, back when you know Kovner and Soros were running around managing twenty forty million bucks. Correct, um, making bets on the silver markets and whatever else. Correct. Exactly, exactly. And now it's much more of a kind of you know, statistical arbitrage or merger and, you know, position sizing and risk management and everything like that. And it's, uh, and a lot of the people who are most creative in the hedge fund business are actually quite annoyed at this because their hands tend to be much more tied than it used to be. They used to right. be. Um, now, some of the big guys, you know, don't have their hands tied and, you know, um, they fall on their face. I mean, the biggest example of this is, uh, is uh, John Paulson. Um, who ran, oh, uh, you know, this this huge, you know, went from zero to hero um, by betting against the mortgage market um, <laughs> and had the one big trade. He had the book written about him, The Greatest Trade Ever. And, you know, since then, he's been the lousiest hedge fund manager ever. Um, and, uh, you know, you never know if someone's been lucky or smart, um, you know, but based on um, his, you know, what he's done in the past couple of years since his one big trade, which is now going on, you know, four or five years, uh, right. He was more lucky than smart. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, that's and it's not the same Paulson as was uh, was our Treasury Secretary. No, no, it's hopefully nobody one. confuses those two, even though they probably uh, traveled in some of the same circles there for a while. They, they probably both live oh, both live on the Upper East Side. They, exactly, exactly. So what you're saying, in essence, let me let me paraphrase it another way: is is uh, whoever wants to invest in hedge funds shouldn't buy one or two hedge funds and make it the the uh, their entire portfolio. They should be using it to add to a portfolio. To uh, to diversify it and to uh, uh, help in essence uh, hedge their portfolio by the use of these hedge funds as opposed to viewing each hedge fund by itself as uh, uh, something that's going to just keep giving me steady positive returns. Yeah, and 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 if you do some research on it, you'll find that you can actually get a lot of these um, these strategies through a couple different exchange traded funds that are traded now. So you can actually go into your Fidelity account or whatever and mm-hmm. uh, and and trade these things. And there's a you know, the, the, there's there's a strategy called multi-strategy, which sort of assembles a lot of these different strategies together. And so there's a, actually an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, for the multi-strategy hedge fund. The ticker symbol is QAI. Um, hmm. If you look okay. at what it's Appreciate done that. since its launch back in, I think, probably about late 2008, hasn't done a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> you know, so, okay. I mean, you, you know, that, that whole uh, – 
you know, in your intro, you said, well, from March 8th through March 8th of 2009 through now, you know, S&P is up 130%. Um, I'm not even sure if the QAI is positive, uh, but, you know, you could still, you could definitely sleep at night because you weren't going to, you know, lose a lot of money either way. So, Correct, and it might outperform if the market heads down. Correct. Yes, and and you know that's what it's designed to do to outperform the market heads down. And so it's um you know like I said, and because I do manage a I do manage this uh, this Ivy Plus program, I kind of see what these things have done over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. I actually swapped out of that into kind of a, there's an ETF that focuses on global a global macro strategy MCRO, another one that focuses on uh, on equity long short ticker symbol for that is C C L S S. C, mm-hmm. uh, credit Suisse long short, so CSLS, um, okay. and also there's a managed mm-hmm. futures um, exchange traded fund WTI. Um, oh, and okay, even, I was wondering about that. Okay. Yes, yeah, so, I mean these are all relatively small, and they're sure. derivative instruments in the sense that they don't actually invest in this stuff. They 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 track an index, um, which is actually um, actually you know reasonable way to do it because there's no survivorship bias and you know just sort of the general index of things as opposed to just the winners. But um, but again, they tend to be you know they are certainly by far the most boring parts of the uh, part of the portfolio, but uh, but they do have a role in you know when there's massive drawdowns, which is drops in the market like you had in August mm-hmm. 2011, um, those things actually um, don't drop as much. So the you know if the S&P dropped 20 percent, then these things drop maybe two or three percent, and then so they you know help keep your clients happy in that regard because then they don't start freaking out about you know. All their money going down the toilet because the S, you know, the S and P downgraded the U S. credit rating or whatever. So. Correct, correct. Okay. As a matter of fact, this was the, the question I wanted to dig in a little bit. So you are mentioning one of the ways investors uh, might want to invest in hedge funds. They can use these ETFs, and appreciate your your mentioning those because most e- most of the hedge funds really have very high minimums or require uh, accredited investors. So uh, it's really out of the reach of uh, somebody other than multimillionaires. Uh, obviously, the, the the endowments have multi-billions, so that's not a problem. So, uh, does the ETF look like the best way to do it, or are there some with fairly low minimums that are, are worth looking at? You know, I mean, I think that I think for for almost all investors, I think the exchange traded funds are the way to go, um, and okay. for the simple reason because they're relatively liquid. Um, you know, there's much less operational risk. In the sense of, um, you know, because anytime you're investing, because I think in, in any any hedge fund you're going to do, you're going to look at, it's going to be a limited partnership, okay, and they're going to ask for at least two hundred fifty thousand, you know, dollars that you put you know, that you put into it. Um, right. You know, you're uh, you're um, you know you're writing the money to the hedge fund um, as opposed to having it in your own account that you can access, you know, online. So there's Correct. you know there's kind of you know people feel much more comfortable with that. Um, and, um, and, you know, I mean, there's just, it, it's like, it's like putting all your, you know, a hedge fund in one sense is, is kind of like its own company. It's like putting all your money into one, one company because you're betting on that team of people to be mm-hmm. consistently good and you're not really diversifying away into other, you know, teams of people, which is where these multi-manager hedge funds comes in and says, Hey, you know, we'll pick out the best team of people and that's it. We'll take another set of fees off the top. Which is, you know, kind of, you know, by, by right. The time yeah. get, so the fund you know, fund, that's money. a very good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. That is the the downside. The good news is you get diversity of of, of different funds, but the bad news is you are paying on top of the the hedge funds your your, your fees. You're paying some sort of uh, managers funds to pull this stuff together. Yeah, and when there's not a bull market, when the market's essentially been flat for the past five years, I mean, you know, the other the other statistic, you know, if you look at four years ago, March eighth to March eighth, right? Okay, S and P is up 130. percent You look at you can go back one year and it's flat, 
you know. Sure. Oh, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. No, no. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge difference. You add one more year, it really does kill the kill the returns very much. So. Yeah. So I mean, I mean that that's the you know that's that's the other side of it. So it really depends on what your you know what your um, uh, you know what time frame you're looking at, what your expectations are. But you know, as John Kenneth Galbraith said, the financial memory is very short. And um, people, you know, don't even remember August of 2011. I do because I had clients calling me left and right, you know, thinking sure. the world was falling apart again. And, um, and uh, you know, a lot of times in managing a hedge fund, when you have direct contact with clients, you're, it's, you're, you're, it's almost a bigger challenge to deal with the psychology of the, of the clients than it is with, you know, your own psychology in managing the fund because you're managing expectations and people relate psychologically different to their you know, funds, et cetera. So anyway, getting back to the hedge funds, I think the you know, I think it would be quite rare that based on how, you know, the exchange trade of fund has de- world has developed that uh that there would be, you know, any necessity for people to sort of, you know, write a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar, five hundred thousand dollar check um mm-hmm. to to someone um, you know, when you know, and to buy a hedge fund when that represents a substantial part of their wealth. Now, I I do manage accounts as well, so I actually do manage that, that those kind of funds for people. But I know right. it's not their entire, you know, kind of wealth because they happen to be very wealthy people. So, um, but I, I would not, man, you know, I would if that's a substantial amount of money for someone, you know, there's no point in putting it into some, you know, hedge fund that, you know, has outside. It becomes a major investment, and 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 that you don't want that to be uh, driving your portfolio. You don't want it to be the, uh, the 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 main portion, is what you're saying. It should be a diversification. It shouldn't be, uh, you know, the bulk of it. Yeah, okay, and, fair and, point. And, yeah, and, and and the other thing is, I mean, who's ever managing that fund right now? I mean, they're probably massively underperforming in the last five months, and so investors are angry get angry at them for that right. reason now. <laughs> you know, so I mean, you know, because so, they already forgot about the fact that you know it didn't go down as much, whatever, eighteen months before then. Correct. So, I correct. Mean, you know, I think there's kind of taking personal responsibility and sort of looking on the internet, researching some hedge fund exchange traded funds, and starting small and seeing how you relate to you know the price changes. You know, um, it's probably the best way to go. Okay. Now, their fees are very high, as you mentioned, uh, typically like 20% of the, the uh, performance. Question on that, there are two questions, really. One is, I'm assuming the performance, when it is quoted or shown, is net of those fees. And the second part of that is, are the fund managers giving back 20% of losses, or is it strictly on the upside that they're paid? Um, uh, the answer to your first question: it, the the the, uh, the performance the performance that you see is uh, is is almost always net of fees. So after the okay. fees have been deducted, That's important point. Right? So if you look if you look at anybody's kind of long term track record, they they should be reporting at net of fees. Okay. Uh, number two, uh, there's a concept in the business called the high water mark, which means that um, which means that you only get 20% of the profits uh, based on um, only if you've exceeded the previous highest level. High point. Okay. okay. So you didn't get so, dinged on the way down, but you don't get the credit for coming back to where you where you started exactly. going down. Exactly. Gotcha. Which is okay. the reason well when people explained. take when, when people when hedge fund managers take big hits, oftentimes they'll just wind up the fund and start from scratch because they don't have to work hard to make up for the uh, you know you know for that loss because just the mathematics of it. If, uh, right. if you know you give me a hundred bucks and it goes down fifty percent, you know you got fifty bucks left. I have to have a hundred percent year to get back up to zero. So I'm working exactly. free for a long time, um, especially in a market like this. And so um, people just say, all right, well, why don't I just start all over? So, but that's again that you know there's a you have to get back above the high water mark for you to earn that uh, performance fee. 
Excellent. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to get your views about the prospect for financial markets in the next few years. Seems like uh, you know none of the major economies have really recovered from the Great Recession, and yet we're seeing the markets way at tops. All of the countries, uh, all the major countries, are pursuing this race to the bottom by trying to weaken their currencies. These all seem like kind of negatives for the financial markets. Um, help us make sense of this whole thing. Well, I think a lot of this, if you look at it from a macroeconomic or systemic standpoint, it's hard not to argue that the current market is really driven by the excess liquidity, um, by the you know the Fed putting money into the market with the $85 billion a month purchases. There's just a lot of money sloshing around, and that money has to go somewhere. Um, ditto for the currency, um, you know, devaluations. Like for example. Mm-hmm. The um, you know the yen has dropped about 14% versus the dollar just since uh, December because the, uh, the guy who just got appointed because the new prime minister there Abe uh, said we need to have a you know a, an inflationary monetary policy he just appointed a new uh, head of the central bank there who is going to say we're going to print start printing money like crazy they've already yep. committed to injecting one trillion dollars into the market um, uh, you know devaluing the Japanese yen. The, uh, the 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 Japanese stock market has taken off for the first time since uh, 2006 or something. It's up yep. about you know um, well depending on whether you hedge your currency or not. You know uh, the Nikkei itself is uh, is probably up about 32, 34 percent, something like that. I think I wrote a global group about it just last week. Um, and um, uh, and again, so Japanese market is taking off another extra trillion dollars being injected into the into the world's third largest economy. Um, and so that's a big push as well. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think if you look at it from the Austrian perspective, um, it's, it's, it's basically just the system being flooded by a bunch of money and markets being driven up. All right. Now, how does, mm-hmm. how does a completely agnostic hedge fund manager deal with that? Saying, well, okay, I know that's the deal. Um, am I going to stand by with my arms folded and uh, and be angry at you know this reality, or am I going to try to make money from it you know, while Correct. I can? And hopefully, you know, I'll be as smart as Ben Bernanke and be able to stop the printing press at the right time and suck the money back out. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I think people who sort of sit on their hands and are just sort of saying this can't last, this can't last. Well, let's say you're right, but you know that between now <laughs> and then, you know. You could be missing out a heck of a lot of money. Um, right. So markets can be irrational longer than you're liquid. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I think that's you know that's the driving force behind the you know behind the markets. And again, you know, there, another sort of abstract point is is that um, that even if you don't um, buy into this kind of you know, self-congratulatory kind of, you know, Krugman-like approach to reality, saying, well, the world didn't fall apart or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and, you know, wasn't I really smart in the beginning? He was. He had the, a piece like that in the IHT, International Tribune, just this past weekend, um, kind of patting himself on the back, citing the statistics <laughs> you just did. Well, the S&P is up 130% since March 8th, and, you know, you guys are all wrong, and I was right. Now, you don't have to, you know, buy into that whole reality um, right. uh, to understand that, um and I learned this from a guy named Bill Browder, who used to be the biggest investment fund, uh, biggest fund manager in Russia, where he said, um, he said, look, you know, people say I'll never put my money in Russia. Jim Rogers used to be like that. He says, look, Russia doesn't have to be Switzerland. You know, he goes, I personally, this is what Browder's saying. He says, look, I think Russia is a piece of whatever doo doo, mm-hmm. okay, but it's not as bad as you think, and all it has to do is get less crappy than it is now for me to make a lot of money. 
right? Gotcha. So, so you're not expecting Russia to turn into Switzerland. It just has to, it has to be less bad than you think, and it's that sort of, you know, the the derivative kind of second derivative change there. Just the fact that it's improving from, uh, and it's not as bad. Just the fact that it's improving already gives enough fill up to the markets to to do well. To um, make some money, sure. And make some money. So I think, um, you know, with you know, wh- however you believe the statistics on the, you know, unemployment in the U.S. and they're fudged this way, fudged that way. I mean, I know, I know, I own a couple properties in Florida, and you know, they are now 20, 30 percent higher than they were uh, a couple years ago. Um, so that makes me feel wealthier because I have more equity. In my, theoretically, I have more equity in my properties, so things are improving. Um, you know, relative to Europe, they look better, um, and so. It's not that things are great, but they're not as bad as they were, and that in itself right. can give a fill up to the to uh, to equity markets as well, um, and um, you know make people a little bit more open to taking on some more risk. So between that, the situation kind of you know it's not great, but it's improving, combined with uh, you know trillions of dollars being put into the global economy, um, that means that I think financial markets can move ahead uh, for you know for a while. Um, you know, there's probably hell to pay at some point, but, uh, you know, there's probably a couple hundred percent between then and now. Um, so you and, might as well uh, take advantage of it and earn some money. Yeah, so um, it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to turn into whatever a person who says it's going to be all right, but, you know, you also have to, you know, you're managing people's money and you're having to you know, do the best you can in terms of, you know, helping secure their retirement or whatever. Exactly. With whatever their money is going to be worth by the time it gets there. Now, you and I both build our portfolios by making bets on various markets, where they're going, and uh, whether we're going long or shorting or just avoiding. Uh, where are you placing your bets today, and what places would you be shorting? Well, i got a couple different themes in my trading services, and those are okay. kind of relatively short-term, so why don't I share some of those? Sure. Um, uh, in my, I've got a monthly product called the Alpha Investor Letter where – uh, kind of just sort of this is the way it kind of evolved. Um, I've noticed that among the sort of eight or ten positions I have in there, then this is more an intermediate term type of approach. Uh, I've got a lot of bets on the uh, U.S. housing recovery, uh, and that's through okay. home builders, uh, that's through an international um, uh, real estate exchange traded fund, uh, VNQI, which is a Vanguard International Exchange Traded Fund, right. um, a, a timber um, exchange traded fund. Mm-hmm. Um, which is uh, which Jeremy Grantham is a big value investor based GMO in Boston says that he expects timber to be the best performing asset class over the next seven years, um, and part of the reason timber companies are doing well is linked to the housing housing recovery. Right. Uh, and then I also have a bet on a U.S. Um, real estate investment trust um, called Two Harbors, which actually mm-hmm. uh, this is kind of an interesting story. You know, people are saying, well, do I buy housing and then sort of, you know, buy a cheap house, rent it out to people? Well, Two Harbors, actually, this real estate investment trust, uh, started doing that, um, bought up, you know, three, four, five thousand houses, and then basically contributed that as an in-kind contribution to a new company called Silver Bay, which went public in um, in December, and hmm. um, is basically its, its business model is to raise money from investors and buy up a bunch of houses in the U.S., rent them out, and then kind of do on a large scale what um, – what uh, you know, individual, individual investors, investors try to do. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, it's the same business model that Warren Buffett back in September says. Well, you know, if I, if I were small enough, I'd probably like to build, you know, um, buy up, or if I could, I'd like to buy up a couple hundred thousand, hundred thousand houses in the U.S. and rent right. them out. But you know, I can't. So basically, uh, that's what this Two Harbors is doing, and it's kind of spin off Silver Bay. 
So anyway, you, recovering U.S. housing, whether it's through buying up houses, building houses, timber, you know, the international aspects of it, housing builders, you know, a lot of that, you know, a surprising amount of that theme kind of manifested itself in that particular product. Um, so that's kind of one theme. Another theme in uh, one of my trading services is actually pretty contrarian, um, but a lot of the people who I meet with at the Junto um, are betting on, and these are kind of the people who are, let's say, less institutionalized and more sort of swinging for the fences, as they say, uh, mm -hmm. is a bet on European banks, um, which are a very contrarian bet because people hate them and people right. always worry about what's going to happen in Spain or what's happening in Ireland or whatever. But um, um, I actually had a recommendation in the Bank of Ireland, ticker symbol IRE for a while, and I actually trade that pretty actively. Um, and, um, you know, the macro story on that is Ireland's coming back. Um, mm -hmm. The guy, billionaire U.S. investor Wilbur Ross, um, actually owns a big chunk of it. He sits on the board of the Bank of Ireland. Bank Ireland itself has a very low tax rate, maintained it in spite of pressure Correct. from the EU. Um, and I think that economy is going to come back, and that's why Bank of Ireland has gone from, you know, um, I think today it's trading up, you know, probably nine dollars and thirty cents. I think it's been low as, you know, two or three dollars, um, and um, it's been as high as, you know, whatever split adjusted, probably a couple hundred or something. But, um, wow. you know, it's easier to make money on the way up than down percentage-wise. Um, yep. So, uh, so that's kind of one area. And there's also a very big bank called Santander, sticker symbol SAN, which is a recommendation, okay. which is a Spanish bank, which also has big exposure to Latin American markets, and. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people are betting on these European banks. Again, the situation, the investment thesis being, yes, it's bad, but it's better than you think, kind of idea mm -hmm. that I articulated before. Okay. Um, so that's more of a, you know, contrarian, you know, kind of view. But um, Yeah, that definitely is, yeah. But, um, but certainly something that, uh, you know, it's been, it's been actually been pretty, you know, pretty successful if you look at the charts of these things. Um, over the past four or five months while we're in this kind of risk-on mode. So those would be the two themes that I'd highlight that uh, I'm looking at on some of my trading services. Excellent, excellent. Now, how often do you switch your allocation or make dramatic shifts, if you will, in those themes or your recommendations? Well, you know, it really depends. on. Some, uh, I mean, a couple, couple – I mean, for, my, for the money management programs that I do, um, relatively um, rarely I rebalance the IV Plus program once a year. Um, hmm. In terms of, in terms of, because that's basically uh, an asset allocation type of program. I'll fiddle right. with it at the edges if it's kind of a new set of exchange traded funds comes out or whatever. But that's sort of, you know, that's that's much more set um, for the intermediate uh, investment services. Um, you know, I'm looking for kind of six to twelve month holding periods um, for the. Um, I actually have two trading services now. Um, you know, one of them is for about six to eight weeks, and I've got a one that's very short term, which is more like two or three weeks. Um, so it really depends on your investment objectives. But uh, mm -hmm. I kind of kind of cover all those uh, all those areas depending on, you know, uh, which hat I'm wearing that day. Okay. All right. Let's get your contact information out again. We are running a little bit beyond, but I didn't. It was just great stuff. So I didn't want to uh, to to shorten us, and we don't have a show right up against us. So that helps us. Uh, let's get the uh, website out again for Global Guru Capital. It is. Yeah, it's globalgurucapital.com for money management services, mm -hmm. and then it's nicholasvardi.com for uh, my financial newsletters. And you can sign up for the um, for my free uh, e-letter that comes out on Tuesdays. Uh, at nicholasvardi.com, 
and uh, there's packages are up there as well, which gives you some. You know, I think last week I wrote about Japan, um, some of the ideas that I talked about today, and um, yep. you know, I, I do some specific recommendations there, but uh, much more timely ones in the, in the paid services. Sure, I understand. We've covered a lot of topics. Are there some key areas we've overlooked and uh, you'd like to add, whether whether about the markets or hedge funds or um, uh, prospects for the uh, for the markets? Well, um, I guess you know. I guess broadly, I think I've covered covered most of the most of the um, uh, you know questions in terms of prospects of the markets, investment philosophy, specific investment ideas. I think uh, one one um, one uh, quote that sticks with me. When um, when people were trying to analyze uh, George Soros's investment philosophy, uh, one mm-hmm. of his chief investment officers said, um, you know, he's talking about how chaotic his investment style is. He's always you know changing his mind and you know cutting his losses, losses and you know moving back and forth. And people think he's when they actually watch him invest, they think he's absolutely crazy and they can't figure out how the heck he you know he had such an amazing track record. And then one of his chief investment officers says, well, look, this is a very tough game. If it were easy, meter maids would be doing it. Um, and, um, mm-hmm. and especially with with the amount of information that we all have and access to and analysis and subject to all the information that you get from all sorts of different sources, uh, it's a tough game. And so I think um, um, you know there's a lot of balls that need to be held up, you know, held up, uh, kept up in the air uh, when you're looking at these things. And while it's interesting, I can see how it would be pretty overwhelming for a lot of people. So um, and that's why I think that you know if you do find it overwhelming, it's probably better to find someone who does this for a living and does a decent job at it than sort of trying to do it yourself. But um, uh, because it were that easy, the meter maids would be doing it. So if you're a meter maid, um, hire an investment advisor. <laughs> exactly. And, if, and for our Hungarian listeners, we have to add that we are talking about George Soros. Um, That's right. And uh, that it's just uh, so few people know that Hungarian, uh, the letters S is, is reversed, and it really is kind of confusing with the SH. But uh, nonetheless, Nicholas, on behalf of our listeners, I'd like to thank you for taking uh, actually a little over an hour of your time on uh, Monday afternoon to meet with us to discuss hedge funds, share your insights about the markets, and I'm hoping we can get you back on in the future. Okay, terrific. Thanks a lot for the invitation, Ron. All right, excellent. Thank you for being here, Nicholas. Uh, now let me just take a few minutes to summarize a couple key points. One I started to mention when we when we lost Nicholas on the line there, and that is if you want to manage a hedge fund or investment fund, you realize there's some pretty smart guys out there like Nicholas competing with you, so it's not easy. Uh, there are a number of different type of hedge funds we talked about, and some of them will uh, actually in themselves hedge risks. Others are great as complements to your portfolio, and their results can vary very dramatically. Now, if you're going to invest in ETFs uh, for the average investor, uh, Nicholas recommends, uh, sorry, in hedge funds, he recommends using ETFs, and he mentioned a few names that you might want to take a look at, and these are the ticker symbols QAI, MCRO, um, CSLS, WTI on the managed futures, and that one I was definitely not not uh, aware of, and I do want to look into that a little bit. Now, he also mentioned he does have uh, several newsletters, some paid services, and there is one free one. If you go on nicholasvardy.com, uh, and that Vardy is with a V, you can see it in the announcement, uh, that he does have a free one that will come out tomorrow to be able to follow some of his recommendations, and it sounds like a great idea. And uh, what else? If uh, you want to invest in hedge funds and not use ETFs, you want to do it on a bigger scale, it helps to be a multimillionaire. And if you want to get uh, Nicholas' perspective on these hedge funds and different financial markets, well, you'll be able to get it from some of his newsletters and also take a look at the uh, main website, the um, uh, Global Guru 
globalgurucapital.com. All right. Well, with that, I guess I need to uh, remind you that we have covered a number of um, topics on alternative investments, and our next shows we'll be discussing topics like angel capital, venture capital, mortgage notes, and we'll even have a, a guest on to share how much do the typical financial advisors learn when they're in school about financial uh, instruments like these alternative investments. And I just shared with you some good reasons for you to tune in to the Wealth DNA Radio Show every second and fourth Monday. Remember, our mission is to help one million listeners become millionaires, and I certainly expect you to be among the wealthiest. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show is the fourth Monday of March, and that is Monday, March 25th, 9 a.m. Arizona. As far as I know, nobody will change their time in between. Same place, same time. The archives of past shows available on Wealth DNA. US. If you have some suggestions or questions, if you haven't received emails reminding you about this show, send an email to ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. See you in two weeks. Happy investing. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.